And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One of the most celebrated television series of the 1990s and early 2000s was The West Wing, a sometimes idealized but often accurate depiction of life in the White House. And uh, one of the uh, reasons that it was so uh, true to life were the core of White House veterans who worked on that show. Eli Addy was Al Gore's speechwriter uh, during Gore's years as vice president in the White House uh, and was very familiar with the rhythms and the uh, plot lines uh, of life there. He took that to Hollywood and ultimately became chief scriptwriter uh, for the West Wing uh, and went on to uh, play that same role on shows like House. Eli also is a graduate of PS40, my alma mater in New York City, uh, and a guy with an incredibly interesting story. I sat down with Eli a couple of weeks ago in Los Angeles to talk to him about his life in politics, his life in Hollywood, and PS40. Eli Addy, we, we have led parallel lives well, if you can leave parallel lives at different times, but we're both sons of New York City. This is true. And graduates of PS40 in New York City. Life begins at 40. Yeah, we both had this wonderful uh, elementary school teacher. You You don't think teachers can make a difference. This woman, Lee Roth, made a huge difference. In my Phenomenal. Life. Me too, yeah. actually. And 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 she, my brother is a couple years older than me, and he went to PS40 before me and had her as a first grade teacher, and I was assigned a different first grade teacher, and my parents actually went to the school and, and demanded begged that. and insisted, and it was hard to do, apparently, that I be switched into her class. Yeah. And she was phenomenal. She exposed... Uh, I was, had her for first and third. We read Martin Luther King, about Martin... This was in the early 60s, Martin Luther King, Civil Rights Movement. She introduced us to all these um, poets and... I mean, just broadening experience yeah. in a public school. She would tell us um, our homework assignment in the first grade would be to go home and watch a cello concert on PBS. I mean, it was it was uh, very unusual. She brought Ogden Nash. Remember the lim- the Limerick uh, oh, sure. guy, Ogden Nash? Candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. That, that guy. She brought him to uh, John Ciardi. Just incredible. It was an incredible experience. But I digress. <laughs> New York City. Um, tell me about your experience there. Now, I've been exposed to your your late father's work because mm. you wrote a book on it, and your mother's an artist and I took the liberty of looking up some of her artwork too which is kind of interesting yes well, my both my parents wonderful gifted artists my mother Dottie Addy still very actively working and showing her work and is in many museum collections it's great stuff uh, she's terrific. She's, some describe her as kind of a feminist painter. She doesn't really like to be categorized. I mean, she, you know, her, her, her attitude is as long as people write positive things, they can call her whatever they want. <laughs> but the interesting thing about my mother is, um, who's had a great career and still does, uh, we learned a few years ago, the family, kind of by accident, that there's actually um, an all-girl punk rock band in Portland, Oregon, named after her. 
No There's kidding. There's a punk rock band named Dottie Addy, and my mother <laughs> always says now that it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to her professionally because, you know, she's a member of the National Academy and, and has been, you know, gotten all kinds of great grants and is in the Whitney and MoMA collections, you know, but everything like that that's ever happened to her, she has all these friends who've had the same thing happen to them, and this is the only thing that's unique to her. Has she uh, heard the band play? She's not seen them live because they really haven't played on the East Coast, um, but but we're hoping actually to get them to play her next opening in New York, oh, that's so nice. uh, if the Dottie Addy gals are listening. Your dad was a graphic uh, artist and a photographer. Yeah, he started as a, as a commercial illustrator, and then he became a photographer and um, was, a I think, a phenomenal photographer who died when I was very young. And um, How old were you? I was 14 mm-hmm. when he died, and he was, uh, he was in his 60s. He was older than my mom, but still very young. And... Uh, he, you know, was a, was a very wonderful, actively working commercial photographer, photographed a lot of interesting people and things, and then just nobody really lifted a finger to keep his work out in the world. So the book you're referring to, a few years ago, um, I started uh, rifling through his archive just to kind of find interesting things. I don't really know if I had a clear goal even, and found incredible uh, portraits he took of Truman Capote in the 1950s and uh, portraits of Bobby Fischer taken you know, right before he became the world chess champion and uh, the rock group, the band at their peak in 1969 uh-huh. taken in you know, Woodstock, New York. So, and my father was not a celebrity photographer. So by happenstance, uh, a publisher became interested in these Capote pictures and also pictures my father took of Capote's Brooklyn neighborhood in the late 50s. He lived in Brooklyn Heights at the time, way before it was you know, as hip as it is today. Right. And, and Before this, all of Brooklyn was as that, hip as it that's is today. Really, yeah, absolutely. When it was still... It's funny, you look at these pictures of Brooklyn in the 1950s, and it's, um, it's multi-ethnic, and there's African-American kids playing with white kids, playing with kids with turbans on the street. And ironically, New York is so wonderfully diverse. Brooklyn Heights is like the whitest place in New York City today. But um, this book came out last year and wonderfully got a lot of attention and has sort of revived my father's name a little bit. Did you, was, was politics part of what you guys talked about growing up? Absolutely. I grew up in a, in a very uh, partisan uh, Democratic household. My father, um, I would describe as a kind of a New Deal Democrat. And um, FDR was his hero. And I also, when I was a kid and growing up, my parents were huge uh, Nixon haters and Reagan haters and, you know, uh, uh, staunch uh, progressives. But the interesting thing is that my mother, um, in the late 1960s, I guess she was very angry at Hubert Humphrey for the Vietnam War. And so she didn't vote for Humphrey in the Democratic primary in 1968. She voted for Dick Gregory, running a sort of a Jill Stein meets Ralph Nader meets Pat Paulson kind of weird third-party candidacy. And to this day, she thinks she helped elect Richard Nixon. So I, I kind of grew up with this belief that, like, you have to be principled, you have to be progressive, but there's also a place where rubber meets the road. And so my mother really even more than my father, has sort of taught me, you know, you stick with the person who's viable, you support the beleaguered incumbent even in tough times. I mean, there were times when I was, you know, working for Al Gore, not to skip ahead here in our story, yeah. when when I was very uh, dispirited by Bill Clinton's uh, 
problems, let's say. And she would buck me up and basically say, he's our president. We need to stand behind him. Like, look at what he's trying to achieve and look at what they're trying to do. You know, and so that I, I, I think I wouldn't have worked in democratic politics in the way that I did if it wasn't for, for my mother. And that sort of teaching me that you don't, you don't go with the crank candidate, even if there's a couple things that they're saying about, you know, hemp subsidies or whatever that you, <laughs> that you think are delightful. You know, you uh, but you didn't you 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 gravitate to this through writing. Uh, uh, yes and no, actually. You know, when I first got out of college, my first job. Wait, before you get, yeah, to get sure. out of college, talk about being a writer. And you obviously that was something that uh, that was came to you and was important to you from a very well, early age. Both your pa- both your parents were in the sort of visual. That's art. right. That's right. And you took to writing. That's right. You know, but the funny thing is, um, I this is the funny part of, of, of sort of looking at my career now, which is that I never set out to be a writer, and I never really had any particular... I didn't think of myself as a writer for a long, long time. Um, I, for whatever reason that I can't describe, it wasn't that I had an interest in it. I always from the time I was in elementary school, junior high school, was able to write these little one or two page papers that you would have to write for school easily. And it just felt like I could express myself in that way, not in some deep poetic way. I didn't do much creative writing, a little bit here and there. But it just was easy for me, easier than taking a test. So as I went through high school and college and started to be able to pick classes, I would always pick the classes that had a lot of papers as opposed to a lot of tests. It just was more comfortable. It was just easier. You actually developed some sort of rubric for teaching writing to students when you were, when you were an undergraduate. Yeah, I guess that's right. I, I, I worked when I went, I went to Harvard College, and there was a, a writing center there, which was a place where students could go get help on papers from other students. And we um, were trained in how to do it, and it was a very kind of non-directive peer counseling center. It was actually a really cool place where you would come in with a paper, and I would look at the paper and not tell you what to do, but ask you questions about it and try to guide you to, to your own realizations about what you were trying to say and whether or not it was actually in the thing you'd already written. Because we were really instructed, you can't do people's work for them. Right. Um, and I'm so appalled now where you know I have friends... Uh, whose kids are in you know private schools, and they just have armies of tutors who very often write the papers, and and uh, I just think that's so horrible. But you're, you're appalled because you think back to what a living living you could have made back I was, in the day. Well, and that nobody did that for me. <laughs> uh, uh, I just feel ripped off. No, but so so I started to realize in college that most of the drafts of papers that people were bringing me in this counseling center were so bad, and they didn't have the foggiest idea of even the basics of how to structure an argument or what the professors were even looking for. So I, I, I wrote, uh, I guess my senior year of college, uh, a kind of a, through that writing center, you know, with their sort of support, a kind of a guide for mostly grad student teaching assistants for how to even just structure an assignment for a paper in a way that gave the students some idea of how to structure their argument in the paper. There just was nobody helping teach writing. I mean, there were some expository writing classes that you would take, but, you know, you would think the people teaching you day in, day out would, would care about it, and then they would get back these very incoherent papers. And Did you ever think to yourself, maybe you should have gone to a more elite institution where kids knew how to write, <laughs> not this Harvard college? Well, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing that, um, that, that anywhere you go... 
um, yeah. most writing is bad. Yeah, and I think I worry a little bit that um, you know now we're in the Twitter so Twitter universe, and uh, um, you know we, I don't know writing is all in shorthand now. So the right punctuation the, is gone. Right, uh, capitalization is gone. Yeah. But it's funny. I, I I was just thinking about you know. Uh, the novelist Charles Bukowski once said something that I think maybe explains my career as a writer, uh, which is that um, he, he said, I write not because I'm so good, but because everyone else is so bad. <laughs> so, so that's my motto. So were you politically active there? Were you in the, did you go by the Institute of Politics at Harvard University? Yeah, I did. Actually, I, 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 you know, I didn't do anything formal with the Institute of Politics. I was I was on the Harvard Crimson, so I was kind of a student journalist, mm-hmm. so that was a little bit of a form of activism. You were a journalist. Uh, I don't know if you consider that a form of activism. You were a professional yeah, journalist. I did, yeah. But I never was involved in, like, college Democrats or anything like that, but I did hang around the, the IOP, and interestingly enough, um, I got a grant from the IOP to help me research my senior thesis, which was about the Reagan's invasion of Grenada. So I think, even though I didn't necessarily get involved in campaigns or things like that. I followed politics very closely. All my friends did. We all were sort of frothing at the mouth, you know, liberal Democrats. And um, it definitely was always a big part of the conversations I was having, I would say that. So talk about the transition, because you started right, almost right out of college. That's right. I, start, I did start right out of college. And in terms of being a writer, you know, I actually wanted to go to law school um, when I was in college. And not for any reason I could explain now. Just p- other people were doing it. I was kind of a generalist. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, That's and, what people do when they don't know what they yeah, want to do with their life. which is really ridiculous because law is so specific, and you, you and I know 8 million lawyers, and most of them are pretty unhappy if they're working as lawyers. And it's a little bit like saying, you know, I'm a generalist, and I could do a lot of different things, so I think I'm going to go to dental school. <laughs> it's so specific, and, and so many people find themselves doing glorified clerical work and hate it. But fortunately for me, I, I decided to take a year off um, after college and apply to law school during that year off, and I uh, worked in New York City government for, uh, for David Dinkins uh, when he was the mayor, and that was the year that changed my life in a couple ways. One... I learned that you could actually have a great time and enjoy what you were doing without a graduate degree. I just looked around and so many people working in politics and just in New York in general were thriving and having so much fun and they didn't have graduate degrees. And I thought, why do I need that? But the other thing was I stumbled into political speech writing and it wasn't something I set out to do. I don't think I was even aware there was such a thing. But I was in a program that still exists called the New York City Urban Fellows Program. And the way it works is you're paid a very small salary out of a fund. That's a great program. And you work anywhere in the government that will have you, and you're free for the office that you work in. But the deal is they can't make you do entry-level work. And somebody introduced me to a guy who's a friend of mine to this day, a guy named John Siegel, who um, uh, has been very involved in New York politics and is a lawyer. Uh, but he was the first chief speechwriter for David Dinkins. And I met him and we kind of said, look, um, I'll, why don't I work for you? And, uh, you know, if, if you don't like me, I'll leave in a few weeks. And if I don't like it, I'll leave in a few weeks. It was just very casual and loose. And I started doing research for him and he assigned me a speech. And uh, it's a funny thing because 
David Dinkins, who I'm very fond of and still in touch with. Uh, first African-American first American African-American mayor, mayor and only African-American only African mayor, mayor unless you count Bill de Blasio which some people do uh, did you know Bill de Blasio back then? I did I did I knew Bill Bill and I both worked for David Dinkins and, mm-hmm. and I knew Bill fairly well uh, and um, I'm sorry I interrupted no, you no you, you know I, I think I was just saying that it was my David Dinkins could sometimes lapse into a kind of legalese, you know, when he was holding a, you know, David Dinkins, when he was holding a press conference or when he was just even reading a prepared speech. And it, and I learned the hard way over a couple of years of working for him that with the right stripped down punchy language, you could really make a difference in his presentation. And I was a kid and I didn't know anything about policy or, or anything, and I didn't have any political wisdom. I wasn't at any strategy table or in any of those conversations. But, you know, I developed a good relationship with him and with lots of the other people, deputy mayors. And so as this kid, I was kind of um, suddenly in the mayor's office for all these meetings and flying around on helicopters with him sometimes. Yeah. And, and so I was, I was, you know, liked and valued amazingly, even though I didn't have any wisdom or experience or anything like that. And I just was addicted to, I have to be honest and say that I, was, I became really addicted to the absurdity of it. In addition to helping to do something and helping to advance a cause that I liked, I mean, just the situations I was in was so, were so weird. Um, just, you know, flying over Queens in a helicopter, you know, with the mayor of New York uh, into some, you know, tense, you know, uh, white ethnic enclave. You know, it just, it was, it was the unreality. I think that maybe that was the beginning of my thinking as a screenwriter yeah. in that I was, I was gonna always, say, did you look at it as a, from a writer's perspective? Did you, were you, did you step back and look at the scene? I realize now that scene? I did. I realize yeah. now that I loved kind of observing the weirdness of a room or thinking about the odd personalities and trying to analyze them. And something that we all do, I think, working in politics is we spend hours just sitting back and analyzing the complicated psyches of our bosses. Yeah. Because the people who get these jobs are very complicated. You know, the number of, you know, nights you spend over a whiskey, you know, talking with you, the, your other friends who work for the same senator about, like, can you, why is the senator like that? You know, it's, it's, um, that was the beginning so, for me, I suppose, of learning to get inside We'll get to Gore later, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> but, I bet, yeah. I, but, I, but, um, you know, one of the reasons, one of the, fun things about working for Barack Obama for me mm. was he brought a writer's sensibility to uh, everything we did. And so he would always be of the scene, but he would also be stepping back and watching the scene and observing the characters in the room. And uh, he always had interesting observations about the scene itself, about the people in the room, good insights into them, but they were very much a writer's sensibilities, you know, and uh, it also is one of the reasons, you know, he obviously was a a great speechwriter in and of himself. I think I've said this to you recently, actually, that um, as, as, you know, crushed, especially now as I am, that he's leaving the White House. (laughs) I I admire him so much and I, I, I love him so much. Uh, the the small silver lining to that cloud is there's there's going to be a truly great book by yeah, ex president. I think so. I think uh, so. I hope. I believe. I think know. that uh, this this particular chapter may have ended less happily than he had hoped mm-hmm. from his perspective. But um, just one question on the speech writing because I want to talk about your experiences in Washington. Sure. 
I'm going to get you to Hollywood eventually here. <laughs> That's the right Is um, you talk about writing for Dinkins? How important is it for a speechwriter to gain an understanding of how their candidate can and can't use language? How is it? How do you get to a point where you're writing what is authentic to that person? Because everyone's different. You know, it's a funny thing. I, I think that um, I've worked for some politicians for whom, and I've, you know, written a lot of speeches, some that you and I have worked on together, for people I didn't work for. Um, I've worked, you know, for a lot of people who don't really care, that if it seems good and punchy and rises to kind of a presidential level or whatever it is, office that, that they're seeking, they'll just sort of take it and go with it. I think the great politicians um, are incredibly particular about language and small things like the placement of a comma or mm-hmm. a phrase to describe something in particular that no one will recognize as the speech goes by become so meaningful to them. And so I think the, the best working relationships I had as a speechwriter, that was definitely true with Al Gore, um, were based on a deep kind of accumulated knowledge of how they like their sentences to flow yeah, right. and, and, and subtle things in the sentences. You know, it's funny because just as an example, it always comes to my mind, Gore would always like to use the phrase self-government more than government. And you would not catch that in a speech most of the time. But to him, it was this kind of very animated concept that, that made the whole thing come alive to him. And, and uh, it's a, being a speechwriter, you know, and you can, there are so many different ways to be a speechwriter, which is to say some people don't consider their speechwriter to be an important staff person. Some people consider it to be their closest confidant. But it was actually Ron Klain, our friend Ron Klain, who, introduced, who hired me to work for Gore, uh, who said to me, because I used to talk a lot with Ron about, well, if I think this, should I bring this to the vice president or should I push back on that? Or do you want me to bring up this uncomfortable thing with him or would you rather do it? And I remember him saying to me once, he didn't want me to raise a difficult issue with Gore and that he was going to do it because he said, you know, your relationship with him has to be kind of like priest and penitent. (laughs) You know, he just felt, and I think that's true, that as a speechwriter, you know, you can express your opinion, especially when asked. Sometimes you get a chance to weigh in on significant things in the dark of night. Uh, but you have to be a booster, a cheerleader, a friend, a supporter, get inside their head, tap into the idealistic strain that some aides won't even yeah. notice. No, it's um, a, it's a, it is a, uh, a, it is a riffing process hmm. that is really, really important. That level of, uh, of, uh, of collaboration uh, and uh, understanding, you know, I saw it with all of his speech with me and with all of his uh, speechwriters. But you know, it's interesting. You say the the, the the little things that a good a good speaker cares about. Obama was has a very musical sense about how words play against each other, and he would rearrange sentences mm. because of the cadence yeah. of of those words. John Favreau, who was his chief speechwriter yeah. for years, super talented uh, guy, is a, and a ta- and a musician. He's a he's a very oh, talented so pianist, and uh, I think they shared this sense of musicality that contributed to the way words were arranged. Yeah, in these speeches, it was it was an interesting process. Uh, interesting process to watch. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Eli Addy. So you, how did you get to Washington from New York, and how, how did you end up with, uh, with Gore? 
Well, so what happened was um, I was working for David Dinkins, and I was very happily living in New York and having a great time, in, you know, right after college. And um, David Dinkins lost his reelection campaign, and I had gone from being one of the sort of city hall speechwriters to being his main campaign, his only campaign <coughs> speechwriter on that reelection campaign. So that brought me into the sort of world of political consultants and strategists. And I met Harold Ickes and I met mm-hmm. Bob Shrum and I met David Doak and all these people who really were Washington people kind of dipping a toe into right. New York politics. And so as the campaign was ending, uh, I guess Dick Gephardt was looking for a speechwriter and and uh, Bob Shrum. Those guys were working on the campaign, Doak and Shrum. That's right. Doak and Shrum were working on that campaign. And, and Bob Shrum said, Dick Gephardt's looking for a speechwriter and do you want to, you should interview for it. And I wasn't actually very interested uh, because I thought David Dinkins would win re-election. I was happy in New York. I just didn't think of myself as, I thought of Washington as this kind of sleepy town. And um, and actually, interestingly, I then started to think to my, I went and I met Dick Gephardt and I liked him a lot, actually. But then I thought to myself, well, gee, if I'm going to go to Washington, maybe I should try to get a job in the White House. And I tried through Harold and a couple other people, and just I wasn't able to break through or get anybody's attention. What year was this? Uh, this was ninety four. Oh, so uh, so yeah, so the Clinton administration. right first Clinton term. So I ended up t- getting this job offer from Dick Gephardt, and kind of on a whim, saying, you know, I'll move there for a year. I'll just kind of try this out, and I can always come back to New York. And um, I was, you know, leaving Manhattan for Washington. Uh, it was a bit of culture shock. I mean, you know, these giant streets with these monolithic buildings and nobody walking on the street is how it felt to me. I felt like a nuclear bomb had hit the city when I first arrived. And I grew to really love it. And very soon after um, moving to Washington, I made what are still some of my closest friends in the world, Tony Blinken and Jay Carney and all the people we sort of know in common. And, um, and, And grew to really love Dick Gephardt. And he was so much fun. And uh, of course, very soon after I moved there, we lost control of the Congress, and I felt like Congress was where you wanted to be and not the White House. It was actually um, a very vital effort to kind of stop this Newt Gingrich revolution. And it's funny because about a year into my job for Gephardt, and I worked for him for a couple of years, um, I was offered a job as a White House speechwriter. I guess I just got to know some people, and mm-hmm. uh, the then chief speechwriter called me, and I went down there. First time I ever went to the White House was, was I was called down by Don Baer, uh, and, and I turned it down, which was amazing because a year before, I was desperate to yeah. get a foot in the door. And I just thought, I'm involved in something now that seems more important, actually. And um, so short version of the story is about a year later, when the re-election campaign uh, was in high gear, uh, this is shortly before you and I met, actually, mm-hmm. uh, I realized now it was all about this campaign. And I called Don Baer, who'd been promoted to communications director, and I said, you know, I don't know if you have a job, uh, but I kind of would like to come there. And, he, you know, it took a little while, actually, for me to, for me to, to get hired. But, um, but sort of in the last few months of the 96 campaign, I... I started in the White House as a kind of a communications aide to, uh, to President Clinton. Uh, not an important per- I mean, sort of an, an, an aide to an aide, really. You know, I'd be occasionally in these Oval Office meetings, but more to whisper in the ear of my boss if he forgot something. Uh, and it was an exciting, chaotic, uh, super intense year of my life. And after one year, I thought, 
you know, this thing that had been my dream working in the White House a few years earlier, at least, I thought, you know, I've done this and it's a rough lifestyle and uh, a lot of, you know, people were changing at the beginning of the second Clinton term. And, uh, and actually, a political consulting firm uh, offered me a job. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll do that for a while and try that. And uh, it was more because I just was maybe burned out. And right as I was out the door, um, Ron Klain invited me to lunch. Who was Gore's chief of Gore's staff? Gore's chief of staff, time. who I had known a little bit. I'd known him a little bit when he worked for Dashiell and I worked for Gephardt. Super bright guy. Brilliant guy. You know, I, we brought him in in 2008 to do the debate preparation for mm. uh, Obama. I did know that. And um, and he did it again in 2012. And he, he was Joe Biden's chief of staff uh, for the first few years of the Obama administration. He did Hillary's debate prep this yeah. year. And that trio of debate performances by Hillary, I still think is the highlight of her campaign. I just yeah. think, especially the first debate. Um, and, you know, you can't, I don't know exactly how much of that is Hillary and how much of it is Ron, but Ron is one of the truly brilliant people yeah. that I've worked for. Yeah. Um, and he, the We've intersection had him here on, the, oh. on, the, on the podcast news, that was I manifest. Need to listen to that one. Yeah, yeah. Because he's. He's just, and he's somebody that, that I used to love on, you know, long flights on Air Force Two, just hearing him break down the state of politics meets press meets policy. He yeah. was one of those rare, you know, what they used to call Stephanopolites, who really understood that place where politics, policy, and strategy meet. Uh, and, uh, and he hired you as a Gore speechwriter. Yes, he hired me as Gore's chief speechwriter. And it's a funny thing because... You know, that process probably took a couple months and I had to, of course, you know, interview with Al Gore and be chosen by him. Uh, Ron could only sort of say, I can, I want to get you an interview. The decision's up to Gore. But, uh, you know, I had at that point, you know, when I worked for Gephardt, I was very close to Gephardt. I traveled all over with him. Uh, you know, we used to, we would talk on the phone a lot. Um, and then I went to work for Clinton, but really I worked for Don Baer, the mm-hmm. White House communications director, and I never saw Bill Clinton. I mean, I knew him a little bit, but... Uh, so I just remember meeting with the outgoing chief speechwriter to Gore, a guy named Dan Pink, uh, and just having coffee with him and asking him about the job. And I, I, I asked him, well, what about FaceTime with the vice president? You know, time I would get, actually, it's that term we all use. And he said, yeah, FaceTime is a big problem, but um, not in the way you think. Oh, so you're going to get a lot of yeah, and 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 what quickly became apparent when I started that job was that Gore, maybe like Barack Obama, is a writer started as a journalist, journalist, is a kind of a frustrated writer and a wonderful writer. He writes a lot now and was all over every comma of everything I did. And I certainly had a long—I don't know if hazing is the right word—but you know, I worked for him for about three and a half years. The first year. I just felt like I was on thin ice every day about everything, you know, just that you'd come into his office with one thing and he would want another thing. Uh, and I just had to learn his brain. Um, and we spent a lot of time together. We pulled all nighters together many times. It was just a very intense working yeah. relationship, which I loved, actually. Yeah. Obama's habit is to take the speeches. He, he gives you a download on the front end. He gets the draft and then he'll go back and he'll either mark up the draft or he'll come back with yellow legal pages with paragraphs and pages of additions and make insert them or delete um but um not it wasn't like the he would do the all-nighter 
Yeah. And then, right. you know, you, you'd come back the next morning and you, you'd have something. But it, tell me about uh, Gore himself. What, what are the salient qualities? He's, he's kind of a mysterious guy, you know, and partly in mm. part because he hasn't, he doesn't, uh, much like Hillary Clinton, you know, there was this sense that he, there was some armor between him and the world. I think that's right. You know, I love Al Gore. I saw him recently. Uh, you know, he'll always, uh, you know, we, we sort of these days drift in and out of contact. I, you know, I, there was a time, first few years after I worked for him, we would talk on the phone and we were in more regular touch. Uh, but to me, he'll always be my troop commander from the war. You know, I'll, I'd do anything for him. Uh, but the thing about Gore, I think he's a, he's, you know, this, it was written so much when he was vice president, you know, the difference between the public and the private yeah. Gore. And, um, he's a guy who I think is a, is a genuine person, really funny, really smart, really mm-hmm. sardonic, uh, a more subversive sense of humor in private yeah. than maybe most politicians would have or should have. And a more subversive sense of politics. He was... Well, for sure. He had an image sure. as kind of a centrist uh, guy, but he was he was always looking for ways to, in oh, my yeah. conversations with him, to kind of challenge the... Oh, yeah. This is a guy who, in the first Clinton term, uh, strongly argued to Clinton that they should just adjust the cost of living index for Social Security and eliminate the deficit in, like... Of day, and then deal with the political fallout and climb their way back the whole first term. I always thought as president, I wouldn't have put it past him to, you know, get some kind of a carbon tax, some hugely controversial thing that would actually make a gigantic long-term change yeah. um, in the country. And I think the thing about Gore, as I, if I was going to sort of um, psychoanalyze him, which I shouldn't, is that, you know, his father was a very, very right. prominent senator from Tennessee. And I think, and he... A he, thundering populist voice from right. the U.S. Senate. Yeah, and somebody who had presidential aspirations himself. And I met his father and, and um, before he, his father died. And I think that Gore very much wanted to... He sort of worshipped his father and wanted to be like his father. But it, it, in the same breath, in a way, I think he was uncomfortable with the compromises of politics. And I think as Gore went through his day as a vice president... Um, that he was somebody who sort of wanted to be a politician and didn't want to be a politician. See, Eli, I, 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 I have this very, very... Uh, I've thought about this a lot because I've worked with fathers and some of the Dailies, the mm. Stevensons. The, um, I always think there's this approach aversion thing, be, you know, that these sons of famous political fathers embrace their father's tradition but also um, uh, compete with it. Yeah, or in some ways reject it, and uh, I think Gore may be one of the most uh, vivid examples of that. Uh, but you know, you think about Evan Bay, who just lost for uh, to try and regain his seat in Indiana, but his father was one of the great populist, you know, folksy. Right. Sure, Birch Bay, my God, and, and and Evan's style was completely different. They both went into politics. They approached politics in a much different way, but. Uh, let's talk about 2000. Yeah. Because it seems pretty germane right now. Well, it does in too many ways. Uh, the heartbreak being <laughs> chief among them. You know, you had Al Gore running for the third Democratic term yeah. after Bill Clinton, who had obviously yeah. had some difficulties in his final couple of years, but still popular. Um, and uh, some of the same things that were said about Hillary Clinton in this race we just saw 
were said about Al Gore that he was uh, not authentic, too uh, calculating, too yeah, political. Not, not good performers. I mean, and, right, and, and this and, is the thing that frustrates me because I love Al Gore, and if he was here right now, we'd be laughing and joking with him and having a great time. But you know, you know this. We should invite him. Anyone? Over. We should. We, I'd love. Yeah. Let's get him. Let's get him here now. Uh, can we press pause on the? No. <laughs> but but he um, and I think Hillary. You know what they're asked to do. What you're asked to do in these campaigns is to create a kind of a fake authenticity in front of 50,000 people. I don't know that any of my, most of my close friends who are genuine, authentic people, put them on a stage and suddenly it's a different reality. It's connecting with that kind of a, yeah. an audience. You, it's, maybe it can be genuine, but you have to manufacture or project in a certain yeah. way. That's what I think both of them had issues with. But here's the interesting thing. There are many parallels between 2000 and 2016, but I think there's also a kind of a polar opposite dynamic to me in, in that I always felt in 2000 and in the aftermath of 2000, you know, they, they said at the time, I don't know what the statistic is now, but around 2000, the typical presidential election is held within something like 36 months of the most recent economic downturn. Mm-hmm. Meaning there's some memory of hard times right. and people have some sense that this, this election is probably going to mean something. Uh, when Al Gore ran in 2000, there had been 94 months of continuous economic growth. And it was maybe a kind of a blip before some of the downside of globalization really kind of kicked in in this country. But I think there was so much peace and prosperity that people took it for granted. People took it for granted, yeah. and I think that people didn't really think it mattered who the president was. And, right. and 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 you know, I think the view was, well, you know, if Alan Greenspan is healthy, I mean, who yes. cares? And and um, it was a frustrating thing because I felt like the Gore campaign in that year, two thousand. Every day we got up and tried to basically set our clothes on fire and say, hey, he's going to privatize Social Security. He doesn't understand foreign policy. He's going to, you know, this tax cut will eliminate the budget surpluses, which we had at the time, amazingly, uh, to remember now. And nobody cared, and they all thought we were being alarmist, and it didn't matter. And I think 2016, we're looking at so much visceral rage from so much of the electorate because they know it matters, and they don't feel anyone's doing anything. Yeah. I, 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 although I do think that there maybe was a, a bit of complacency, which is natural after two terms of one party. Where For sure. For sure. There was this assumption that Donald Trump, of all people, was eminently beatable. And, you know, you saw, it, in addition to whatever resistance there was to Hillary Clinton, there was a casualness. And there was some in 2000. And so you get the situation in Florida, which famously went on for yeah. months. But history, whatever the actual numbers, history will suggest, will will record that Al Gore lost by 537 votes, I think, in Florida. 90,000 people voted for Ralph Nader as a and former 10,000. This 10, goes back to your had, mother's right. lesson. Yeah, well, for sure. No, and, and it's funny. I, I um, yeah, I always had so much rage toward Nader um, at that time simply because I just didn't see any way he did anything other than hurt the left. You know, and 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 yeah, there, you know, sure, anyone's entitled to run, and that's our system. And uh, I'm not saying he didn't raise some good points. Uh, I just, it's it's frustrating to me. Well, more than anything, it was consequential before this year, 2016. Um, I use this as a parable for people who say elections don't matter, because 
That election turned on 537 votes. Yeah. And I think you can argue pretty persuasively that we, we wouldn't have squandered the deficit. Oh, my God. We almost certainly wouldn't have gone into Iraq, There's which no was way. a particular focus of George W. Bush. And uh, we would have been well down the road on climate change. Three pretty big I don't defining believe, issues. I don't believe September 11th would have happened if, if, if Al Gore had been the president, because unlike the Bush a team who came in kind of obsessed with a, a sort of a Cold War, you know, rivalry with Russia that was mostly, I wouldn't say over because it's revived itself, but Gore as vice president was obsessed with Osama bin Laden and deeply involved in that issue and I think wouldn't have dropped that ball, I believe. So after the, how, first of all, how was that experience to have been there at that time? There was a moment in that evening when Al Gore thought he yeah. had lost and he, thought maybe he had won, and then... Oh, it was a crazy... I mean, I was in a van um, that night heading to the War Memorial when Gore was on his way to concede, and I'd already shown him a concession speech, and, you know, it was over. We'd sort of won Florida, then had it pulled back, and then everybody had called it for Bush. And um, I was in a van with Carter Eskew, who was sort of the David right. Axelrod of that right. race, and and, uh, and Bill Daly. And Daly, he was the campaign manager. He was the campaign manager, right? And he campaign chairman. And he got a call from Michael Hooley, chairman. who was sort of our our boiler room field operative or in charge of field for the whole country, basically saying, with ninety nine point nine percent of the vote counted in Florida, we were only six hundred votes behind. And um, I remember uh, Carter turning to me. I mean, Bill Daly sort of turned back to Carter and said, "What do we do?" And Carter looked at me because he didn't know, and he said, "I guess we need to." change the language in the speech so it's not legally binding? That's the first thing he said, and we didn't know what any of this meant. And so just at that moment, the, the motorcade screeched to a halt, and I was a, we were about a million cars back from Al Gore. So I, I raced to the front of the um, line just because I wanted to grab Gore and say, we have to change the language in the speech. And I was the first person to reach him. He, he had already reached this holding room in the War Memorial, and I said to him, 99.9% of the votes counted in Florida were only 600 votes behind. Uh, I actually think what I said is Carter and Bill Daly need to talk to you. And he just had this look on his face like, what? And they ran He in. had already called George W. Bush to He'd concede. already conceded earlier that evening from, a little earlier that evening, from the Lowe's Hotel in Nashville where we were all staying. And, uh, you know, and his kids were crying and it was that whole scene. It was over. We'd lost. And so, you know, they dragged him into a room and I just thought, I need to change the language in the speech somehow. So I set up a little laptop and printer that I carried around and... Um, it's a little bit of a blur. It's what happened next. It's been written in a lot of books, but you know, I was, I had my laptop and printer on an old steel public school desk, basically in this outer area of this little holding area we had at this war memorial. And before long, and I think that was where the white house had laid down our phone lines or something before long, Gore came out and called W from that desk with about 10 of us, 12 of us standing around and with, and retracted his concession, you know, and I could only hear Gore's side of the conversation, but it was insane. Never done. And, 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 uh, it's, this was not uh, received well by, no, I mean, I couldn't hear Bush's end of the conversation and maybe it's been reported in books Mm -hmm. or something, but the two things I remember from Gore's end of the conversation, uh, one was, um, hearing him say, after a pause, Bush must have said something. He said, well, your little brother doesn't get to make that decision. <laughs> you know, and Bush must have said something like, well, Jeb says I'm fine in Florida. And, and then there was another pause, and Gore said, you don't have to be snippy about it. <laughs> and, you know, you just felt you were witnessing 
you know, absurd history. But then when the call was over, um, we're all around this little desk laughing giddily like we're still alive. Like what just happened? We, we were, it was over and now it's not over. And it was a, the next 36 days were a true out-of-body experience, you know, that involved everything from um, just who went in and out of Gore's house would be reported feverishly in the press. Uh, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was just a crazy... I stayed in Washington with Gore. Um, you know, I wasn't ever in Florida, but it was, you just didn't know what was happening. It just felt unreal. How crushing was it at the end when the Supreme Court had ruled and it was... And uh, and you you probably worked with him on that final statement. I did. That I concession did. statement. Uh, I had had a lot of different drafts that I was sort of tinkering with for different scenarios over the course of the recount. Um, and I, I came to him that the morning that he actually gave his concession speech. I came to him with a draft, and then we substantially reworked it. He dictated a lot of it to me. He'd had friends fax suggestions, and we sort of pieced it together over the course of a day. But it's a funny thing. You know, I felt always like the recount for me, it was like you've got a terminal cancer patient. It, the presumption of victory was unfortunately for Bush. Because his cousin called it for him at Fox News and because a major donor insisted that NBC call it after that, and I think that was erroneous and illegitimate. But it always gave us a feeling of this uphill challenge. And I think there were very few moments in the 36 days when I felt we were going to come out with the presidency, maybe a day or two. Mm-hmm. So... So it was very crushing and sad, the whole experience. But when You were emotionally when, prepared for Emotionally prepared and also a sense of release when the terminal cancer patient finally succumbs, you know? We'll be, um, we'll be back with Eli Addy after a short break. You talked about it being an out-of-body experience. It also was an out-of-office experience. Yeah. <laughs> and you ended up in Hollywood. How yeah. did that happen? Well, it was very strange and random, like pretty much everything that's ever happened to me me in my career, uh, I, in the middle of the recount, was getting all kinds of calls and emails from people I hadn't heard from in years, just because anyone who knew I was connected to Gore, people I'd met once on the campaign trail, would, who had my number or email address, would sort of call and say, check what on the your hell? Well-being. Well, just what's happening? Yeah. You know, like, oh, I see. what's During going career, on? Yeah. And I got an email from a guy I had known but hadn't talked to in years who was a Hollywood agent. And he just sort of said, you know, what's going on with the recount? And so-and-so told me you're still with Gore. And, and uh, uh, this, this talent agent said very explicitly in the email, you know, if this doesn't work out, I can get you a job. Uh, as you, or you, should, you should sell out and become a screenwriter. I can get you a job working on the West Wing, uh, which was a joke, actually. But I remember seeing that email and saying, and the West Wing had been on for about a year and a couple months. Mm-hmm. And I'd seen the first episode with Tony Blinken. And are then Tony, we should point out, is now under uh, he's Deputy, a de- Secretary, Deputy of State. Secretary yeah, of State. Yeah, a true rock star yeah. and one of the greatest people ever. And we, we've both worked with him closely. Yeah, great guy. And, uh, he's really, he really is the reason I got my first White House job, actually, I think, or the, that I first got on their radar. But um, so I hadn't really paid attention to the show. I hadn't watched it. But I remember looking at this email and thinking, well, boy, if the recount doesn't go our way, and I didn't think it was going to, I do want to get out of Dodge. I do want to try something different. And, you know, speechwriter, screenwriter, which was sort of the joke this guy made in the email, how different could it be? It turns out it's completely different. But I thought, you know, why not? So I called that agent, and, I, and we chatted for a little while, and I said, were you serious about maybe me becoming a screenwriter? And he wasn't. And he said, you know, it's pretty hard, and you'd need a screenplay, and you'd need all these things that I didn't know anything about. But I, but I hung up the phone from that conversation, and I thought, 
you know, I've had some interesting professional experiences. I've been lucky to have some interesting professional experiences. Maybe I should do this. And so, you know, after the recount, we're going out every night for drinks with reporters and other staff people and commiserating and debriefing, you know, what's going on now in New York and Washington and everywhere. And everyone's asking everybody, are you leaving town? Are you staying? What are you going to do? And I was getting job offers on Capitol Hill. But I started saying to people, um, I think I might move to L.A. and become a television writer. And I didn't really know what it meant. I was trying it on for size. And everybody to a person, like 40 people, said to me, the West Wing, you should go work on the West Wing. And I'd seen 20 minutes of it and it hadn't landed with me. It hadn't resonated with me. But then I watched a couple episodes of it on the air and I thought, this is pretty good. And actually, Aaron Sorkin is such a gifted, breezy writer, it seems easy. So I remember watching it thinking, I think I can do this. And of course, it was super challenging and hard. But really what I did is I called him out of the blue. Um, and when you work on a presidential campaign, you know, you can reach anybody on the phone. So it wasn't so much arrogance. I just thought, it's not that hard to reach somebody. So I called Los Angeles Information, asked for the number of NBC, um, got the switchboard and said, I'm calling for Aaron. I'm trying to reach the West Wing, actually. And they said, um, you actually need to call Warner Brothers, the studio. They gave me that number. Uh, and then on that next call, I made it all the way from the switchboard to the West Wing offices to his office. I said uh, to his assistant, he doesn't know me. I w- was a speechwriter for Al Gore until a couple weeks ago, just calling to talk to him. Long hold. And then he came on the line. I think because he'd been sitting there in front of a blank computer screen, probably angry about the recount. It would be like, <laughs> right. you know, somebody from the OJ trial calling law and order and saying, you know, <laughs> do you want to talk? And he was incredibly friendly and nice. And I said, look, I'm not asking you for a job, but I'm interested in being a television writer. And I've seen a couple episodes of your show. I mean, it was so pathetic. In retrospect, I'd barely seen the show. He was so nice. and said, oh, I wouldn't expect you to be, you know, sitting around watching it. And then he said, I'd love to consider you for a job. Uh, and so the short version is I flew out, I met with him for half an hour and he changed my life. And I have to point out, by the way, that, um, in addition to you and I being graduates of PS40, uh, he hired, Aaron Sorkin hired me. I was on the phone with a friend from elementary school from PS40, uh, when I was about to make the move to LA and I just called him and said, Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm I'm moving to Los Angeles. I, I got a job on this TV show, the West Wing. And he said, um, well, you know who Aaron Sorkin's mother is, don't you? I said, who, who's his mother? Mrs. Sorkin. She was our fourth grade elementary school teacher at <laughs> PS40. So all roads lead to yeah, PS40. Yeah, that, that is well known, actually. It's the citadel <laughs> of it's, politics it's the, exactly, and art. It's the hot Yes. Of, um, and, and uh, you know, he has a reputation of being kind of difficult uh, to work for. Uh, a brilliant yeah. guy, an incredibly creative guy, difficult to work for. But you... I loved it. I loved every second of working for him. And he not only was a great teacher and friend and mentor, um, I always felt um, after working for difficult politicians and presidential campaigns, I mean, you know, the legend is these are hard jobs and thankless jobs. And uh, first of all, I, I just loved it. It was just, you could say some, yeah, I could tell all my anecdotes from politics and then change the endings and make them happy endings, which was incredible therapy. But I, that I honestly... That could come in handy right now. Yeah, well, I, I need it now. But, but, uh, but I also felt, working at this job that was recognized as a very difficult job in Hollywood, I felt like every day was a half day. I just felt it was so not challenging. Yeah. You know, because Aaron Sorkin would come into the writer's room at the West Wing and say... Uh, okay, I'm thinking this and that, and here's what I want to look at for the next episode, and we should get a storyline going for this character, and he'd leave the room. And I would look at all the other writers like, okay, we need all of this in seven minutes, because that was my how I was trained yeah. in politics, and everybody would be taking out lunch menus. 
Uh-huh. You know, because it's a TV show, you know, we're selling Liquid Tide, like we can figure this out tomorrow. And um, so I just came in with a lot of anecdotes and stories and hungry to learn. And, and I, I, I had a great, great experience with Aaron. How He's much, how much there was, how much was that derivative of your experiences in the White House? And how much do you feel that the, at, that the West Wing uh, actually, tra- I mean, it, it, Aaron Sorkin has a, an enormous gift i mean a capra-esque oh, yeah. gift for infusing his stuff with that sense of majesty that yeah. that we think of democracy at its best uh, i joined the show at the beginning of the third season um it had already you know the first two seasons won record amounts of emmy awards and everything else i can't you know so i can't take credit for anything about the show in the sense that it, it was what it was it was fantastic show Plenty of people would say their favorite episodes were from seasons I wasn't even there. Um, but Our, what was, by the kids at the IOP were my at Chicago. They they have still have West Wing nights. I went to one. Remember yeah, that, that that's when right, I visited that's right. you there, I went yeah. to uh, one of the early ones, and yeah. it was so much fun. Uh, and your students were so great. Uh, but I but but what was great was just you know maybe because I had walked out of that building so recently that Aaron was really eager to hear my stories and I was really eager to learn how I could provide him with the kind of things he needed and it was just an incredible screenwriting laboratory for me and I just had so much fun and I loved all the writers there and all the actors and um, a lot of whom are still really close friends of mine and so I found I was able to put a lot of myself into it over time sometimes just you know a line or a moment, sometimes a whole storyline. I mean, later on, as time went on, and Aaron ended up leaving the show, and I ended up sort of stepping up more as a as as a writer and producer there. But you know, there was a character there whose career arc ended up kind of mirroring mine. He was a sort of a mid level guy working for the president, who then went to a more senior job for a vice president. Then, obviously, we ran the campaign to succeed uh, Jed Bartlett, the Martin Sheen character, and that was when I really got to put a lot of my campaign experiences and what it was like to work for a vice president who really is just platforming into a run. But even from the earliest days there, the other thing is that Aaron had, and maybe still has, because he's a writer um, and, and really defines himself as a writer very deeply and emotionally, he had this kind of erroneous and wonderful view that speech writing was noble and sexy and glamorous. So, of course, like the handsomest character on the West Wing, Rob Lowe, is the speechwriter. And women would approach <laughs> him after speeches that the president had given weak in the knees from his rhetoric. And it was just kind of a joke to me because, as you know, speechwriters are so kicked around and marginalized at times. I mean, I used to talk about it with Aaron, but that was, I could kind of give him all my speechwriting anecdotes and he found it riveting. <laughs> you know, and and we did so many episodes about speech writing, and to me, it's like watching paint dry. I mean, it's you and I, uh, you and I spoke uh, during that period. Uh, yes, be- we did. This was after Barack Obama had gotten elected to the U.S. Senate. Well, I know it was before. Oh, maybe during Amazingly, that campaign. It was before during that campaign. So here's and 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 you. This is how you played an enormous role in in the West Wing. This is what I'm trying view. to elicit. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> it's true, and I've told this story many times. That so I. After Aaron left the show and John Wells took over the show, uh, but he was he made it much more of a multi-writer show and really delegated a ton to the writers and producers there, and, and John was amazing. He actually had come up with the idea that we should run the race to succeed the Martin Sheen character, and why don't we do something that's just over the horizon but not happening yet in the country? And we talked about it as a group, but it was really John's idea. Let's have a Latino uh, candidate for president who's really viable. 
and um, and we ended up casting Jimmy Smits in that role. And, you know, thinking that that would probably be the first non-white president would be a Latino. It makes sense kind of demographically and for various other reasons. Plus, we live in California, so we tend to think that that's a bigger thing than it is nationally. So um, that character was introduced in a couple episodes in a scene or two. And then John said to me, I want you to write two whole episodes just about this character beginning to campaign and going to New Hampshire and going to Iowa. And we'll film them together on location. Uh, and so basically I had to fill two hours pretty much with this character who'd just been in a couple scenes. And so, you know, the first thing I thought to do was research and who are the Latino, the prominent Latino politicians who might be viable on a national scale. And, and I don't know if I called you about that. I might've, cause we'd both helped Freddie Ferrer a little bit, or yeah. you really worked for Freddie. Right. I helped you on something, I guess, but, but I couldn't really find anybody who fit that description. And right around that time, Barack Obama gave his unbelievably electrifying speech to the Democratic Convention in 2004. I knew from the papers that you were, you were his guy. And so I called you, and I remember having a couple long conversations with you. One where you were, I think, driving to a Cubs yeah. game. I was uh, driving. I, I, one one was I was driving to my place in Michigan, so oh, I had okay. a lot, good long time to yeah, talk. Yeah, like I remember it was a long. fun conversation. And, and I just remember saying, so tell me about this guy, Barack Obama. And he was already famous. It's not like he was some mm-hmm. obscure guy from the, you know, from the Ozarks or something, but he was, this, he was a state legislator who was already a rock star. But he was like the Matt Santos character on The West Wing, became, in my mind, really because of these conversations, he was a guy who was post-racial. He didn't want to be defined by his race. He wanted to try to change the process as he participated in the process. He wanted to be smart about it, but also elevate it. He was grappling with being a vessel for everybody's hopes in a way that was unrealistic. It was everything that made sense for this character. And so I really think those conversations... um, shaped at least my conception of who this character became and and this the incredible irony is well right back at you because then we ended up running for president well (laughs) (laughs) it was always a source of great um mystery and intrigue among west wing folks actors and writers whether barack obama had seen the west wing and there were so many competing views on whether he had ever actually watched it uh, uh, maybe I'll leave that I'm, there. I'm sure he has. Uh, he told I, the yeah. one time I met him, he said that he had. Yeah, but yeah. you might say that to somebody. Yeah. But no, no, but, I think he has. But but in any case, you know, it's just funny that at that moment, I never ever thought I would see an African American elected president in my lifetime. Yeah. So as much as this character was sort of shaped on Barack Obama, it was kind of well, this is fiction. You know, I, I probably would have thought we'd have a Latino president before an African American president. Although, of course, Barack Obama is just such a unique historical figure he's beyond any categorization for sure but the irony is then later when obama was elected which was such an amazing you know fiction couldn't have matched that campaign it was so incredible yeah and i remember writing you an email during that campaign and you said wrote back something very nice like we're living out your scripts you know (laughs) but what you were doing was so much more stirring and transformational than anything we did but People started to write that there turned out to be a lot of parallels between the Jimmy Smith's character and Obama. Weird things, like they both liked Bob Dylan. You know, uh, uh, little personality things that were just pure coincidence. But uh, So here we are, and there's another presidential election now passed. That also defies uh, anybody's imagination. Nobody would have guessed two years ago that Donald Trump would be president of the United States, a reality show star. Um, but here yeah. we are. Um, a, could you have 
imagined writing such a script? And B, is there, what does it say? I, I'm one who believes in all of this. I think there's a better day ahead. Um, but could you have a West Wing show now? Are people, or are we in a period of time when people are jaundiced and jaded because of what they have seen? You know, I think I think you could have a West Wing show now, and and um, the, the the West Wing got its highest ratings when W was president, and and there was a lot of uh, nostalgia, yeah, and anger and division. So this and was a tonic for people who wanted to believe that I think so. there's more nobility. I think so. It obviously started and became a bit of an early hit under. Clinton, but I think it really caught on more under Bush, and maybe it was a fantasy for people, you know, for Democrats, although I always meet Republicans who liked it and found it kind of heartwarming, and at its best, it certainly didn't, you know, want to demonize anybody. Uh, I don't think the Trump election could have been fiction, because it was so bizarre. One of the things Aaron Sorkin taught me early on is that there's a difference between what is real and what seems real. I came in the door of that show thinking any any one of my Gore campaign stories they'll think are fantastic. And I told a few of them and they were so strange and so absurd and so dark that they were like, mm, yeah, we're not we're not using that. <laughs> or no one would believe that. Uh-huh. And 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 this was the the, the, the brilliance of, of Aaron, which is that it's about what seems real. It's not about what is real. I remember Ron Klain saying to me, because he'd seen more of the West Wing than I had at first, and he used to give me a lot of great ideas for the show. Uh, he said, he argued to me that the West Wing was more real than the real thing because it stripped away all the clutter and just focused on the kind of essence of decision-making and what it was like to be there. So, but I think, you know, this kind of buffoonish, cartoonish, you know, narcissistic, orange, fake wig-wearing, you know, it wouldn't seem realistic. It doesn't seem realistic to me now, and it happened. Yeah. Well, w- w- I wanted to talk to you about all your other accomplishments in television writing, you, uh, and we're not going to have time to do that, but you're working on a show, Pitch, now? Yes, I, I, I've been uh, working on a TV show on the Fox Network about actually the first woman in Major League Baseball. Was it inspired by that wonderful little leaguer who... Uh, no, you know, it's funny. It, it was the guy who created the show um, wrote a screenplay 10 years ago. It was just one of many, many Hollywood projects, like most Hollywood projects, languishing on a shelf. And someone heard about it and thought that would be a good TV show, and it kind of got revived. And it's been a really fun little show. We, we, we shot 10 episodes. I'm not sure if we're going to... Well, we hope we'll get a chance to do more. But I also... I'm in a sort of a deal with uh, Fox Studio for, for television. Do you so think that you'll, ever re- that you'll return to politics... Is there another, you said there, you think there'll be a market for the West Wing? Perhaps there'll be an environment in which people want to be inspired. Do, do you think As you'll subject be- matter for, for, right, for, for scripts, you mean? Yeah, yeah I could see, I, I, love, I love politics. I love writing about it. I love the complexity. I love the largeness of the characters. I love the stakes of it. I love the fun of it. Um, I love what it can, I love it as a game and I love what you can do through it. So it's always something I want to write about. After the dramatic the West Wing, elements are there. It's the greatest. It's yeah. the greatest. And it's why there are so many shows now in and around that arena 
But for me, I think after the West Wing in particular, I felt, you know, I want to have a career doing this and have other options. And so that's why I moved on to more material that didn't have to do with politics, house just to show I could shows, house yeah. and other yeah. shows like that. But uh, I would do it in a second. You know, if, if somebody, if Aaron Sorkin said, we're, we're getting the band back together and we're doing more seasons of the West Wing, I'd be the first person to, you know, put the spurs on. Well, let's start that. We can start that movement I right think now. I we should. Here. Eli Eli petitions. Thank you so it's much. It's a great for being pleasure here. to call us. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.